Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. So welcome to our Catechism class. And in this lesson, we're going to be taking a little bit of extra time to cover a very important subject indeed. We're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Mass. It's the central act of worship in Catholicism. And specifically, we want to demonstrate why we, Protestant, Reformed Christians, still object to the Mass, as much as our forefathers did at the time of the Reformation. I am doing this because our catechist, Zacharias Ursinus, will ask us in Lord's Day 30, question 80, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? So he invites us to make such a comparison, and he helps us with the answer. He tells us that the Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all of our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. Now there is some strong language, especially when you think it's coming from the Catechism that has the warmest and mildest language of all, the doctrinal statements, that came from the Protestant Reformation. There really is something about the Mass that our catechist finds truly objectionable. So it's our job in this episode of the podcast to find out exactly what that is. And we're going to do that using the Catholic Catechism where appropriate, so that we don't misrepresent the official Catholic position. I know also that I have many Catholic listeners, and I certainly have many Catholic friends, and this is not in any way a reflection on their own personal belief. For I know that many Catholics, even some priests, do play down the ideas of transubstantiation and sacrifice. This instead is a plea to those who are in the Catholic Church and who truly believe in the Lord Jesus by faith alone to recognise the errors and the deviations from Scripture that underlie the Mass and come away from Rome and seek godly Christian fellowship in a Bible-teaching evangelical church. So why is the Roman mask to our catechist an accursed idolatry? I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast.
what is so objectionable about the Mass that it makes our mild-mannered teacher Zacharias Ursinus speak so strongly? I have three main reasons. Its name, its procedures, and its dangerous fictions. Well, firstly, we do object to the name itself. The very word Mass to describe an act of worship of Almighty God is unbiblical. The Catechism of the Catholic Church reads in section 1332, Holy Mass, Missa, because the liturgy in which the mystery of salvation is accomplished concludes with the sending forth, Missio, of the faithful, so that they may fulfil God's will in their daily lives. Well, if you've ever been at a Mass or you've heard one on a radio programme, you will know that when the Eucharistic element of the service has been enacted and the prayers have been said, the priest will then announce, the Mass is ended, go in peace. That's the dismissal, the sending forth of the people to live a Christian life, allegedly, to go on a mission from the Latin Missa, which approximates to the word Mass. That's not exactly what the Catholic Catechism actually says, though. The Catechism says the liturgy in which the mystery of salvation is accomplished concludes. Now, that's some statement right there. The Catholic Church actually claiming that salvation is accomplished on their altars and having been therefore saved through the Mass, the faithful go out on their mission. The word Mass, seemingly derived from the dismissal of the people having partaken of the false salvation that is proclaimed at the Roman altar, that word Mass is abhorrent in origin, in meaning and in use. Let's move on and see why we object to the procedures of the Mass. If you've ever even watched a Mass on your TV set, you'll have seen that the whole thing is a visual experience. It's a performance that appeals to the senses. A while ago, a Roman Catholic man attended a funeral at Ballymacashan Church, and afterwards he confided to me that it was his very first time inside a Protestant church. So I was interested, and I asked him for his first impressions. And his reply was that he was struck firstly by the austerity of it all, the plain furniture, the simplicity of the service, the lack of pomp and ritual. The Catholic ceremony and the rite, the Mass, is full of visual drama, the bells and smells of Roman worship. But in its enactment, the performance of the Eucharistic element of the Mass is not only unbiblical, it is anti-Christian. Now let me demonstrate that to you. It begins with an adoration of the host, so-called. When the Catholic priest has consecrated the so-called host, he will hold the wafer up for adoration and for worship. And devout Catholics will bow to the wafer, believing that it is the actual flesh of Christ in what they think is an act of worship. The consecrated host is often stored in a safe called a monstrance. 
and Catholics passing this safe, even when no Mass is taking place, will often bow or genuflect. In Catholic countries, the monstrance will be removed from the church and it will be paraded throughout the streets, again receiving the adoration of the Catholic faithful. Now that monstrance contains nothing more than plain bread. And to worship it is no less than blasphemy. Here's the law of God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 to 5. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Peter Kreeft, a Catholic apologist, quoted in Kevin DeYoung's book, The Good News We Almost Forgot, admits this. I'm quoting Kreeft here. If the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist were not true, this adoration would be the most momentous idolatry, bowing to bread and worshipping wine. And it if is true, then to refuse to adore is equally monstrous. There is no way round this dilemma. If transubstantiation is true, then the Mass is pleasing to God, and we ought to bow before the consecrated host. But if this is my body is to be taken no more concretely than I am the gate, and if the doctrine of transubstantiation only works by importing Aristotelian categories, then Protestant fears about the Mass are justified. It is not safe to kneel. It most certainly is not. So the Catholic Mass includes the adoration of the host, which we find abhorrent. But it continues with the priest sacrificing Christ. Away back in the 1990s, my son, who was then 10-year-old, came home from school. Hey, Dad, he began. At school today, my teacher said you were the same as a Catholic priest. Well, I was, to say the least, incandescent with anger. I most certainly am not. Well, it was the long arm of the Northern Ireland Government's Education for Mutual Understanding programme, which was being taught in our schools, reaching across the whole school curriculum. There's a huge difference between a Protestant pastor and a Catholic priest. And no matter how much you want mutual understanding between different religions, you most certainly should not blur the essential differences. The Protestant pastor is a preacher, someone who teaches the word of God to a congregation, who points them to the cross. And while a Catholic priest may give a short ten-minute homily in the Mass, his role is entirely different. It is to offer the sacrifice of the Mass as a means to deal with the sins of the people. So on the Roman altar, the priest, having called down Christ from heaven in transubstantiation, having thus implanted him in the bread and wine, now proceeds to sacrifice him. I think we'd be right to quote the author of Hebrews here. Hebrews 7 and 27, speaking of our great high priest, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 25 and 26. 
nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's remember that the Catholic teaching on the sacrifice of the Mass is a little more complicated than we might at first think. To us and to a huge number of ordinary Catholics, the Mass is a sacrifice. It is the sacrifice afresh of Christ on the altar. And to Protestants, that's an abomination. Our Catechist reports, therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ. Yet the Catholic Catechism and Catholic apologists and Catholic theologians will tell us that Christ is not sacrificed afresh. The Catholic Catechism's language is highly disingenuous. Here it is, in chapter 1330, the memorial of the Lord's Passion and Resurrection, the Holy Sacrifice, because it makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Saviour and includes the church offering. The terms holy sacrifice of the Mass, sacrifice of praise, spiritual sacrifice, pure and holy sacrifice are also used since it completes and surpasses all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Chapter 1366 The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross, because it is its memorial, and because it applies its fruits of visible sacrifice, as the nature of man demands, by which the bloody sacrifice, which he was to accomplish once for all on the cross, would be represented. Chapter 1367 the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. So, the Catholic Catechism is in a sense speaking with a forked tongue. The Mass is a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice. The Mass is a sacrifice, but it's not a different sacrifice at every Mass. It's a continuation of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice. It's just making Christ's one sacrifice on the cross present now on the altar, representing it, to use our words, visibly. Not very clear, is it? Do you get the impression the Catholic Church is not being entirely honest here? That it wants to have its cake and eat it? That it wants to have its sacrifice, but deep down it knows rightly that it's wrong, and so it obfuscates with obscure and mendacious language? Personally, I prefer the plain teaching of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, down to verse 14. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. No extension of a sacrifice is needed. 
No further sacrifices are needed. No repetitions of the one sacrifice is needed. No representations are needed. Once, only once, and once for all, Calvary was enough. We strongly object to the fiction that the Mass is a continuation of the sacrifice of Christ. But there's another difficulty we have to consider here. Because this sacrifice is offered by a priest. And isn't that in direct opposition to the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ? Isn't he our prophet and priest and king? And when he died on the cross, didn't he offer himself as a sacrifice? He was not only the sacrificial victim, he was the lamb, but he was also the priest who made the offering. Hebrews 9 and 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And here we have the Catholic Church telling us in an official statement that a priest, a sinful being, is offering up the Son of God himself on an altar. Here's the Catholic Catechism, chapter 1367. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Catholic Catechism 1369 Through the ministry of priests, the spiritual sacrifice of the faithful is completed in union with the sacrifice of Christ, the only mediator, which in the Eucharist is offered through the priest's hands in the name of the whole church in an unbloody and sacramental manner until the Lord himself comes. But when Christ offered himself for sinners, he was the priest. No other priest could make such an offering. His atoning sacrifice is part of his own priesthood, and that's a vital doctrine. Hebrews 9 and 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 7 and 24, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Hebrews 9 and 25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He gave himself as an atoning sacrifice. And that's really important because Jesus gave himself for the world. First Timothy 2 and 6, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. First John 2 and 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Remember, there is sufficient saving merit in the death of Christ for all to be saved, and yet he gave himself specifically for his church. Hebrews 5 and 25 Husbands, love your wives, 
even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. While Christ's death is sufficient for all mankind, it is efficient only for those who are his. He gave himself for his people. And that's what we read in Galatians 2 and 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He is my Saviour, because he gave himself on the cross to be my substitute. But we find at least one more objectionable practice in how the Mass is celebrated, for it culminates with the faithful being refused the cup. Those Roman Catholics lining up to receive the sacraments at the hands of the priest are given the wafer as the priest intones the body of Christ over each recipient. But in direct contravention of the command of Jesus to take and to eat, and to drink ye all of it, they are then refused the wine, on the basis that they might accidentally spill the blood of Christ. And yet the priest, after the people have partaken, will drain the cup dry. It is nothing less than pure superstition. So let's sum up. The Catholic Catechism is riven with the language of sacrifice, and no attempts to sweeten it by obfuscation will remove that error. And for our Catholic neighbours, that is really bad news. The Catholic Catechism states the obvious in one respect. It admits that the sacrifices made on the altars of Rome are bloodless. Catholic Catechism 1367 In this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Now that is really bad news. For a bloodless offering can never atone for sins. It is the offering of Cain in Genesis 4, 2-5. Rome's bloodless sacrifice is the very opposite to the cross, where Christ died, where his blood was shed for sinners. It is the antithesis of biblical redemption. For in Hebrews 9 and 22, we read, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Well, we have seen how we object to the name, the word Mass. And we have covered how we object to the procedures, the way in which the Mass is enacted. But we also object to its fictions. The Catholic Mass makes astonishingly extraordinary claims in its practice and in what it seeks to achieve. And all of them are dissembling and all of them are eternally damaging to the soul. 
Here's just a few of them. Let's just look at some. There are others. But one of the fictions conveyed by the Catholic Church is that the Mass conveys some kind of saving merit. A Catholic friend of mine was worried about her mother. She was elderly at that time and quite ill and was worried that the end of this life was very near. And she had started going to a Mass every single day in the hope that if she could just get enough saving merit, she might one day be able to be with Jesus, Mary, and all the saints in the afterlife. And that's the tragedy of Catholic belief, that the Mass pretends to convey grace to the sinner more than any other sacrament. It diverts the poor sinner away from the real source of saving grace, which is, by grace through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. As Martin Luther learned from Romans, the just shall live by faith. A further fiction is that the Mass purports to lessen the period of torment that the Catholic suffers in purgatory. Catholics are taught that when they leave this life, they have still residual sins, venial sins which remain and which, which must be purged before they can get to heaven. So after death, souls go to purgatory. But you can have your time in purgatory cut short slightly by having masses said on your behalf. And so the Catholic Catechism 1371 states the Eucharistic sacrifices also offered for the faithful departed who have died in Christ, but are not yet wholly purified so that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ. Now, there's a huge problem with that, isn't there? Not just the theological difficulties, but practically. Mass goers will pay money to have the name of their relatives mentioned in a Mass. At the time of the Reformation, it was the selling of indulgences by the monk Tetzel that Martin Luther found so objectionable. The selling point was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. We still find the selling of indulgences, the selling of mass cards and prayer cards, and the taking of money for the inclusion of names within requiem masses for the dead. It's playing upon the grief and the love of vulnerable, bereaved people. And of course, we do not need to have our sins purged after death. Our sins were purged at Calvary. Hebrews 1 and 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he, the Lord Jesus, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. There's another fiction, that somehow the Mass internalizes Christ and those who are faithful. Here's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. So our catechist says that the Lord's Supper reminds us that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But when the faithful Catholic approaches the altar, 
the priest will lift the wafer from the receptacle and place it either in the hand or on the tongue of the communicant. And for that communicant, as he takes and swallows that transubstantiated piece of bread, for him he swallows Christ. And it has happened. Jesus is now dwelling within him. It's effective, whether the communicant has any faith or none at all. It works. Ex opere operatum. The work works. The priest or the recipient can be the most unworthy, immoral, sinful, unrepentant person in the world, but when that piece of bread is ingested, Christ is dwelling inside the communicant. He is living within them, and that is total fiction. So the Bible is very clear that we are strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. Now listen, I like fiction. I read lots of it. But the Catholic Mass is a dangerous fiction. For by definition, fiction is untrue. And the Mass, in its fictitious claims, gives false hope to poor lost sinners, souls who are groping around in the darkness of Rome, leaving them in dark and deep despair. This has been a long lesson, much longer than usual. But let's finish by drawing some practical conclusions. Can a Catholic be saved? I mean, let's rephrase that. Of course, a Catholic can be saved. A Hindu can be saved. A Muslim can be saved. A Protestant can be saved. But can a practicing Catholic be saved? There used to be a radio presenter here in Northern Ireland back in the 1980s and 90s, who loved to bait evangelicals who came on to his program by asking them, is the Catholic Church a Christian church? Lots of people would stumble over the answer. After all, in the politically charged atmosphere of Northern Ireland, they didn't want to be seen as anti-Catholic bigots. And so they didn't want to commit themselves to an assessment of the Mass in the light of Scripture. And yet knowing rightly that the Mass is not even remotely a Christian ritual, Catholics depend on the Mass for their salvation in the ways that we have learned. But is it not possible that a Catholic can be truly saved despite the Mass? Is it not possible that a church-going Catholic could simply be trusting Christ as Saviour and Lord despite the dogma that their church subjects them to? After all, only the Lord knows who are His, and we may well be surprised who we meet in heaven. There's something else we need to talk about. What about evangelical Christians? Can they attend or participate at a Mass? I'm not talking about those who have to attend the funeral of a neighbour out of respect or whose profession means that they have to be present, maybe a photographer at a wedding or an undertaker at a funeral. A number of years ago, a church leader told me about some ladies who were planning to attend an ecumenical event in the local chapel, as Catholic churches are sometimes known here. I was not best pleased. And the man who 
told me that tried to put my mind at rest by telling me that they didn't believe in the Mass. It's all right, don't worry about them. They're just going along to befriend their Catholic neighbours so they might in turn invite them to our services and maybe even win them for Christ. Were they right to do so? In all honesty, I can't see that evangelicalism is helped by compromise. By pretending that the Mass is in any way a legitimate act of Christian worship. And what about newly converted Catholics? What about those who have come to faith in Christ and are making an open profession of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone? Should we encourage them then to remain in the Catholic faith and to continue to participate in the Mass in the hope of being a good witness to others? I think not. And this applies not only to Roman Catholic churches, but also to so-called Protestant churches where the gospel is not being correctly and faithfully taught. Protestant, Catholic, whatever. Truly converted people, people who love the Lord Jesus, will yearn for the fellowship of like-minded believers and we should encourage them to find a faithful church and attach themselves to it, a church where the gospel is preached. We should encourage that. For Paul taught us in Second Corinthians 6 and 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.